Let's just pray again, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the book of Acts and the way it portrays with complete honesty the history of the early church. And Lord, as your church today here in Lynn, we pray that we may learn something from this. We may learn as a church and we may learn as individuals. So Lord, we just pray that you will open our hearts to what it is you would have us receive from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the book of Acts starts to unfold, we see that the Christian message goes out from just this small group of believers in Jerusalem, um, and then the, the Holy Spirit comes, and very quickly the church starts to grow, and it grows first of all amongst Jewish communities, but then Paul starts to take the message out to Gentile communities. So the, the gospel is going right across that sort of eastern part of the Roman Empire. But as it grows, tensions start to arise, because significant questions start getting asked. Who is the gospel for? How do we apply it? And does the gospel have boundaries? So Acts chapter 15 is a chapter that gives us some fascinating insights into how the early church started to answer some of these questions. You know, sometimes I think it's tempting to read the book of Acts and think, you know, if only our church was like the new church, the early church. You know, if only it was just like them. If only we saw the conversions. If only we saw the miracles. Then everything would be fantastic. Now, a lot of that stuff, I'm saying, yes, amen. Wouldn't it be great if we saw the number of conversions that the early church saw? Wouldn't it be great if we saw the signs and wonders amongst us that produce evidence that Jesus is alive and Jesus is living? But actually, the early church was full of human beings. Human beings like me and like you. And human beings disagree. Have you noticed that in life? Now, I wonder this morning, are you good at disagreeing with people? I don't mean are you good at being disagreeable. The two are quite different. You know, I'm really good at being disagreeable. Ask Claire afterwards. She will probably give you quite a lot of evidence for that. We don't have to work at being disagreeable. But you do have to work at learning how to, how to disagree in a way that is full of grace and in a way that is godly and that is full of Christ-like qualities. And actually, what I believe we see in chapter 15 is the church disagreeing, working it through in an orderly way, seeking the heart of what the, the mind of Christ is for the church, and then moving forward. Because we don't always see eye to eye in church, do we? We don't always see eye to eye. Now, for the early church here, this is a big issue. It's a big, central, theological issue. In fact, it can't get really any bigger than the nature of how you save. In our church, we probably disagree rather more over smaller things. You know, I've sat in church meetings where a long discussion has gone on about tea bags. I've sat through church meetings where there's been endless discussion about what colour a particular door is painted, whether we should have flowers or not. You know, all these kind of issues, the issues of church life. None of those were here, by the way, just in case you're wondering. But these things that we, we disagree about, we, we, we sort of clash and collide about these kind of issues. And I think what we find in this passage is actually some guidance and some help as to how we deal with disagreement in the life of the church. But the issue before the church here is not a small issue, but it's as big an issue as you can get. How is a human being saved? How does a human being go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? How is sin dealt with? How are the gates of eternity opened up to a human being? Is it through grace alone? Is it just through believing in Jesus? Or is it about grace plus works? 
You know, do you have to do stuff? Do you have to keep the law? Do you have to become a Jew first rather than just believe in Jesus? But, you know, once you start adding to a free gift, what happens? It's not free. It's not free anymore. Claire and I went to Neto. <laughs> we know how to have a good time, don't we? So we went to Neto. This was, um, I, th- I think, a couple of weeks ago. And it was just after it had opened. And if you've had the joy of going into Neto, as you first go in, on the right-hand side, they've got all the offers on in these sort of big baskets. And they, they made me laugh, really, these offers, because it was one of them caught my eye. Buy four Mars bars, get four cakes free. <laughs> I just thought, you know, if you've not had enough calories in the four Mars bars, you can gorge yourself on these four chocolate muffins. But actually, the chocolate muffins were not free, were they? You couldn't just go and help yourself to the chocolate muffins. That would be free. You were just splitting the costs between the two. You know, you start adding to something that's free, and it costs. You start having to give money for something that's free, and there's a cost to it. You start putting law around grace, and there's no grace. You just end up with law. So today, I think, as we, as we look at this passage, there are encouragements. There are encouragements for us as a church, things that then I think we can drill down into everyday life. But more than that, there's this massive reminder that the gospel is all of grace that our relationship with Jesus is based fully on grace. So let's look, first of all, at the disagreement that happens. You know, as the church grows, I'm I'm sure if I was one of the apostles of the early church, I would be, you know, just so blessed by what is happening. All these thousands of people finding salvation in Christ. But also, growth brings with it headaches for the apostles. They have to start dealing with people coming in from different cultures, people who are thinking differently. And what's the problem? Verse 1, basically, it's Jewish believers who say that in order to be saved, basically, you have to become a Jew first. You have to become a Jew first. And so they start bringing this to the church and saying, actually, this is what's required of you. I got a text message um, this week, and it came in, and I looked at it, and it read this. It said, hi, Janice. Just thought I'd let you know. And then the text message went on. Now, Bibby isn't here this morning, so I won't embarrass her by naming who that text message was from. <laughs> but anyway, a few seconds later, another text message came in. It said, sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> Autocorrect, got your name wrong. And lots of laughing and sort of smiling faces. But, you know, I'm reading this message thinking, Janice? <laughs> Who's Janice? Has it come to the wrong person? And, but the message seemed like it was for me. I wonder if that's actually what the Jews were doing. They were hearing the message of the gospel and they were thinking, actually, who is this message for? Is it just really for the the Jews? We don't mind a few Gentiles coming in and joining in, as long as they become like us first. But what about if the whole Roman Empire were to become Christian? What happens when all these thousands and millions of people who were alive at that time, if the gospel goes out to them, what happens then? Shouldn't people become like us first? Shouldn't they keep the law and be circumcised? Because circumcision was the outward sign of the covenant. Males were circumcised from the time of Abraham onwards. The Jewish people had lived with this external sign for generation after generation. And you know, there are certain things, culturally, that we find very difficult to compromise on, very difficult to give up. You know, I was thinking that this morning, supposing I was to suggest that actually we close the church, that we close our building that we disband our Sunday services, 
that we don't meet in any of the ways we've been talking about this morning. We don't have holiday at home. We don't have friends and neighbors. We don't do any of that kind of stuff. And we just go and meet in each other's houses. Who would find that easy? (laughs) I wouldn't find it easy. I wouldn't find it easy at all because we're people of habit, aren't we? People who live within a culture. Now, that is our church culture. This was far more significant than something to do with church culture. This was the very nature of salvation. This was how you entered into a right relationship with God. So as we look at these Jewish Christians, you know, I think we need to look at them and think, actually, don't, don't look at them and, and sort of judge them, but look and think how difficult it was for them. You know, they've been hearing this gospel of grace, and yet they've got all this cultural heritage that they're thinking, well, surely this matters. Surely this means something. But actually, what we find so often is that those in the New Testament, the Judaizers who we find here, we find them again in Galatians in a significant way when Paul deals with them, is that so often they totally miss the point. Because they think that actually what God requires is law, is the 613 laws of Moses to be kept, and is circumcision. Whereas actually God has always wanted something very different than that. God has always required his people to have something very different. You know, John was talking about that last week, wasn't he? How God has always wanted justice and mercy. But let's look at Abraham just for a moment. You know, Abraham, the one who started, the one who was the first one to be circumcised. In Genesis 15, verse 6, which is before that takes place, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. How was Abraham made acceptable to God? Was it through an outward sign? Was it through law-keeping? No. It was through simple faith that it was credited to him as righteousness. Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. Faith. Believing. Trusting. That free gift of God. The outward signs are a confirmation of an inner change. Believing. Trusting credited as righteousness, and then obedience. So what happens in this this chapter here? Well, look look what happens next. Paul and Barnabas get sent to the church in Jerusalem. They go and they meet with the apostles and the elders, and it becomes this key first meeting, if you like, first big council of the early church. And it's very organized. I don't know if you noticed that when Rachel was reading the passage. We get, first of all, one group comes and presents their case, if you like, the Pharisee party, verse 5. Very simple. Circumcision and law-keeping is needed to be saved. That's their argument put forward. And then you get to verse 7, and it says, after much discussion, I love Luke's minute-taking here. Um, Wouldn't it be great if we could take minutes like this? After much discussion, then he offers the alternative point of view from, if you like, the grace party, from Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and the others. And he says this, God has made the gospel available to all non-Jews. God has accepted Gentiles and showed it by the pouring of the Holy Spirit. He's purified hearts by faith. The yoke of the law, something we couldn't bear, should not be put onto the Gentiles. And then this beautiful verse at verse 11. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Talking about Jews there, that we are saved just as they are. And then look what happens in verse 12. Paul and Barnabas are called to give an account of what God is doing amongst the Gentiles. We now get to the point where evidence is going to be brought to support the arguments that have been given. 
And I love the way Luke um, words this. You know, there was silence in the room. You can imagine Paul and Barnabas standing up and you could hear a pin drop. This is a critical moment in the life of the church. And look what they say. They start talking about how God has been moving amongst the Gentiles. There's been signs, there's been wonders, there's been all this stuff that Peter has been talking about. You know, our arguments for our faith in Jesus become so much more real when we point to evidence of God at work. When we can say, actually, look what God has been doing here, here, and here. What's your testimony like at the moment? I think in your own life at the moment, what is your testimony like? Can you talk of what God is doing in your life today? You know, often I think when we talk about testimony, we think about perhaps people sharing how they first found faith in Jesus. But what about that ongoing testimony? You know, God is alive in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Surely there will be evidence of what God is doing. God will be working. Now, it may be that in your life you've seen a prayer that has been answered. It may be that you've experienced a victory over a particular sin in your life that you've been struggling with for a while, and the Lord has enabled that to come to a point of victory. It may be that in some area, it might be emotional, it might be physical that you've experienced, or know somebody's experienced healing. Maybe that God has called you or guided you in a particular way. But you know, a life with God's fingerprints all over it, a life that is full of evidence, it points to Jesus as light of the world, doesn't it? A life that is full of evidence points to Jesus. But what happens perhaps this morning if you're thinking, well, actually, I don't have that? I don't have a testimony of what God is doing. Well, the first thing I'd ask you to do this morning is look a bit harder. I think sometimes we skip over so much of what God is doing because we've not got our eyes open. We're not actually watching and seeing what the Lord is doing. When I first thought about my own answer to that question, I was a bit stumped. I was thinking, well, well, how do I answer that? What, What am I saying? But the more I thought, the more actually I've seen God's hand in my life over recent days, recent weeks, recent months. Seeing God's guidance, God's provision, God's healing. I think sometimes, though, we don't look, do we? We don't look for what God is doing. We don't look for where God is producing fruit and evidence in our lives. We see here, the sharing of evidence produces a change in thinking for the whole church. There's a change of understanding that comes about through the sharing of evidence of what God has been doing in the lives of the Gentiles. Now, just to make something really clear, you know, when we meet and we're seeking what God is doing, we're not going to change our theology at a church meeting. You know, that is not our role. That was done as the scriptures were finalized and as the Bible has been put together. But what we do have the exciting job of doing is discerning what God is saying now and what God is doing in our hearts and our lives here and now. Well, for the early church here, this is going to be massively serious. If they went with the Pharisee party, the church would have probably ended up as a sect of Judaism and would have probably ground to a halt. Go fully with grace, and it keeps going that amazing direction that we then see carrying on in the book of Acts. And so look what happens. James brings the closing arguments. Grace is affirmed. He underpins it with a um, a quote from Amos 9, and the grace party carried the day. It was too big an issue to compromise on. It was too big an issue to allow there to be some kind of fudge or disagreement. Look what happens next, slightly more briefly. We've got unity that comes out of this. The council is united. 
We are saved through grace alone. We don't earn our way to God. We don't earn our relationship with God. It's through Jesus and him alone. We can't add to that relationship. Jesus saves us from sin. The cross is the place where Jesus has paid the price for us. The cross is the place where the doors of heaven are opened to all who give their lives to Jesus. No amounts of physical signs, no amounts of law-keeping adds to that one little bit. It's all about the free gift of God through Jesus. But you know, that doesn't give us license to sin. That doesn't give us license to then live a life that is disobedient to God. So what happened to Abraham? What he did was he, he believed in God. That was credited to him as righteousness. But then he was obedient to living the life that God had for him. You know, we're called to the same thing. Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 1 to 4, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from death through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. We may have new life because of the grace that has been poured into our hearts. Simon Ponson calls it this. He says, we are invited into the gracious invitation to imitate God. And what a privilege that is. Because of grace, we're called to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to claw our way to him, but in a response to what he has done in our lives. Now that would be all nice and straightforward, wouldn't it, if the council of Jerusalem ended there. But then you get a funny bit that comes at the end. I don't know if you were thinking, you know, what's this bit about? It suddenly seems like the council backtracks and there's all this other stuff at the end. You know, there are some things that are so big in the life of the church that we cannot compromise. But there are lots of other things where we can actually say to the Lord and, and chat to one another and say, what's the right response to this? How can we be gracious and Christ-like in terms of our behavior to one another? So look at verse 20. James is going to write to the church, saying to the Gentile believers, don't eat food that's been offered to idols, don't eat meat of strangled animals and blood, and keep yourself sexually pure. This is not a bit of law sort of crept in by the back door at the end. We need, we need to try and put that out of our minds. This is not law sort of creeping in. But actually, what this is, is James saying, well, hold on a minute. If the Gentile believers do something like this, we can keep the church united. As long as they realize that they're not doing this to reach salvation, but they're doing it for church unity. Let me just explain what I mean. For hundreds of years, the, Jewish, the Jews um, wouldn't have eaten um, blood. They wouldn't have had food that had blood in it. It would have been an outrage for a Jew to think about going buying meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god. The thought of sexual um, immorality, the thought of people going to pagan temples and engaging in sort of prostitution rites, some of the Gentile Christians probably would have done before they found faith in Jesus, again would have been something of an abomination to Jews. So what we find here is actually a reaffirmation of something that goes right back to Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. You can read Leviticus this afternoon. It's always a good bit of light reading for a Sunday afternoon. But Leviticus 17 and 18 give some godly requirements that allow both Jews and Gentiles to live side by side with one another. 
without causing massive offense to each other. So I think what James is saying is actually if the Gentiles don't do these things, it will actually enable them to have communion and fellowship with the Jewish Christians without causing massive offense to those who are living with that Jewish heritage. Does that make some kind of sense? That makes some kind of sense there. So the grace parties had the victory, but they don't want to massively alienate those Jews who they're living alongside. That would not be a Christian way of living. That would not be a Christ-like way of operating. Learning to share life together as a church, you know what? It's about being gracious. It's about knowing when there are big things on the table, and it's about knowing when those things that we're looking at are not that important. So, you know, I'm thinking about this this morning. Would I compromise on the, the, word, the Bible as the Word of God? Absolutely not. Would I compromise on Jesus as being the only way to the Father? Absolutely not. Would I compromise that Jesus rose from the dead? No way. Would I compromise on what tea bags we drink from? Yes. Would I have a discussion with people about those verses of Scripture that perhaps we find a bit tricky to understand and nobody's quite sure what they mean? Yes, we seek the Lord. We, we ask God's Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us. But we're gracious. We're loving. We're generous to one another. We seek the best for one another. And we ask for the Lord's guidance. You may think I'm crazy when I say that I think church meetings should be one of the most exciting parts of our life together. They should be. Because that's where we get to seek what God is calling us to do together. That's where we get to see what the Holy Spirit is doing amongst us and we get to join in with him. But it's also where we get to do exactly what the church was doing here. We get to be gracious to one another. We get to go that extra mile and perhaps say, actually, Lord, what is the compromise that you want us to be and want us to do? Not on the big things, but on perhaps those issues that it's up to us to decide and discern. But notice what doesn't happen here. There's no moaning from the Pharisee party. Don't you think that's amazing? There is no moaning, there's no whinging. They seem to just take what has been brought and they move forward united. So I'm reading this and thinking, well, there's some great principles there for church living. But don't you think we can drill this down into our own personal lives as well? You know, how many marriages, how many families, how many relationships in the workplace would be so much better if we operated in this kind of way? By all means, we stick to our principles when it's something huge at stake. But when it's not, we learn that godly art of compromise. That thing that allows us to live well together when it's not the big things that are on the table. You know, let's be gracious with one another. Let's show the heart of Jesus to one another to go that extra step and to go the extra mile. But I don't want to finish looking at this passage without talking about this massive issue of grace. You know, if we read this passage and we end up thinking it's all about being nice, it's not. It's about grace. It's about what Jesus has done. As we're in the first Sunday of Advent, you know, we remember that as Jesus came, grace is the thing that, you know, is so important and so central to everything we believe in. And it's at the key moment of this life of the church that the church says salvation is through grace alone. It's not through law. It's not through outward signs. It's through grace. It's the free gift of God through Christ. We can't add to it. We can't better it. We can't earn our way to it. Just look at verse 11 again. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. Jew, Gentile, 
young and old. Every nation, every nationality under heaven. We're all leveled at the cross of Jesus. And Jesus calls out to each of us to respond to him and to take that offer of salvation. So there's two challenges, really, I want to leave you with this morning. The first one is this. Perhaps you've not yet responded to Jesus' call. Perhaps you've not yet responded to the offer of grace that Jesus brings to you this morning. You know, he offers you the opportunity to be born again. He offers you the opportunity of forgiveness because he has paid for all that wrong stuff in our lives at the cross. He offers us the opportunity of eternal life. And he offers it freely, without cost. If that's you this morning, you think, I just haven't responded to that message of grace. You know, come and chat to me or come and chat to one of the other leaders. We'd love to chat more with you about that. But past this morning, you know, you have responded to God's offer of grace. That is not something, certainly for a first time, you need to do. But actually, just to rewind a little bit to Paul and Barnabas, you actually feel that at the moment your life is a bit weak on evidence. Your life is a bit weak in the sense that, you know, you know all about grace, but you're not seeing that sort of being poured out, and you're not seeing God's hand in your life in the, in the way that perhaps you would like to. And you would just love to have a life that points to Jesus rather more. If that is you this morning, you know, do pray with somebody. Do pray that God will be more evidenced in your life that this Advent, this Christmas, that you will be able to point to Jesus in a more effective way. So as we bring our service to a close, perhaps in a few minutes' time, you know, the prayer team will be available. If you do want to pray, that that will be the case for you this morning. You know, don't go from this place without having prayed that with somebody. So can I pray for us all? And then we're going to trust the musicians to come up. They're going to lead us in the remaining songs and the time of response to God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you this morning that our salvation is all of grace. Thank you that we don't have to try and earn our way to you, that we don't have to try and be good to get to you. It's not of our works, but it's all of what you did on the cross. And Lord, I want to pray for us this morning that this passage will just be a reminder of that overwhelming grace that you have poured into our lives. Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done. Help us to respond to you in a fresh, in whatever way your spirit is leading us this morning. We ask it for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.